afternoon, and thank you for joining us for the Evangel Life broadcast. Brother Dan and a team of us from Texas are down here in Coimbatore, India, with brothers and sisters who we're privileged to meet and spend this time with. We've been having a couple days of uh, discussion and teaching, and now we're going to have a question and answer. We're going to be able to get to the questions that you've sent in online, as well as the questions that brothers and sisters may have here in the room. Brother Dan is going to go ahead and read to us some questions, and we'll, we'll try to answer the questions that have come in thus far. Okay, so first question. I was recently privileged to attend a week of meetings at Homestead Heritage, during which Brother Rossi made a brief comment about the nature of the human soul and spirit. Hebrew says that the Word of God is precise and sharper than a two-edged sword, dividing between soul and spirit. Would you brothers be able to elaborate a little more on the difference between soul and spirit, i.e. what they actually are? So I guess I get to start since I made the elusive comment. Um, I think that perhaps there's no scripture that clearly stipulates the difference between body, soul, and spirit. But body is typically uh, translating the Greek word for soma, and spirit is typically translating the Greek word pneuma, and soul is translating psyche. And I think traditionally um, there has been some consensus around the idea that human beings are th threefold creatures and that their body refers to their physical contact with the physical world, their, their corporal flesh. And their psyche, their soul, refers to the seat of their emotions and will. And their spirit refers to that dimension or capacity to interact with the eternal and specifically with God. And I think that scripture sometimes uses soul and spirit interchangeably. So I don't know that we can draw a hard line, but this passage in Hebrews does seem to... to make a distinction and the way I've always interpreted that or heard my father and others interpret it is that God's Word helps us distinguish our emotions versus what is really the Spirit of God is that is that how you see it I would add thoughts to that as well from our minds because so if we read the the whole passage here for the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart there's no creature hidden from his sight but all things are, are laid bare before him so I've always felt like it's 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 just telling us it is the Word of God that helps us know the difference between what is me and what is God in me? What he's speak? What is really he speaking? And and what is my own thoughts or my own feelings? Amen. So it distinguishes between the spirit of God and my will or my emotions as such. Though the spirit of God would like to anoint both of those, if we surrender to Him. So what's? Is there more questions? Yes, sir. We've got two more. Can you share some guidance on the topic of personal private prayer? Maybe details about what your prayer life looks like. How has it changed over the years? What difference have you found that it makes? What advice do you give to others as they are pursuing greater fervency in prayer? Thank you, Jesus. Well, we believe that we receive grace 
in three primary forms. Through the Holy Spirit directly in our personal relationship with God, through the Word of Scripture when interpreted and anointed by the Spirit, and through the body of Christ, uh, those believers who are truly anointed to speak God's Word and grace to us. And I do believe that that is the correct order to start with uh, our personal relationship with the Lord. And for me, uh, personally, I look at passages where it says, enter God's gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. So this tells us that in order to get into the room where God is, into the space where the Spirit is, we cross a threshold. We go through a gate, a door. But the gate that we go through is not some physical structure, but it is the gate of our gratitude, our praise, our thanksgiving toward the Lord. And, and so that's how we start. That's how we get across the threshold of where we are to where he is. And so for me, I, I do. I, I start by thanking God. And I, I, I just start calling on his name. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness. Thank you, Lord, for what you're doing. Thank you for this day. I thank him for my children. And I, I want to feel God's presence. I want to feel that my thanksgiving and praise has indeed moved me out of the realm of self-centeredness and into the realm of God. And I want to stay there until I feel that. And as I start feeling that, then I want to start letting my prayers and petitions be known. But I'm mindful that Romans 8 says that we do not know how to pray as we ought. Of course, this is the born-again Apostle Paul speaking to born-again Christians. And so he's still saying we don't know how to pray as we ought. <laughs> but he says the Holy Spirit makes intercession through us with groanings too deep for words. And so I want to sense that God, that the Spirit is guiding my prayer. And I think that it's, it's not right to, to imagine that our prayers are merely a, a grocery list of demands that we barrage God with. I think it's important to understand that God has got to pray through us. He's got to give us the words to say to him even for our prayer to be effective. And so we have to be in a place of suppleness and responsiveness to his spirit to even know how to pray. And then praying for those needs, guided by the Spirit, praying for that help, praying for anointing, praying for protection, I began to progress through my day. And usually the burdens, the concerns on my heart uh, do emerge <laughs> as, I, as I'm praying. And I'm, I'm wanting to listen in my prayers as much as I'm wanting to be heard. I'm wanting to listen for what God is speaking to me, assuming that sometimes even in the prayer, I'm going to get the answer. I, I do find that to be the case. I feel like God starts giving scripture and answers. They start occurring to my mind when I'm in this place, like sometimes like rapid fire, boom, 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 boom. I will sometimes get out a piece of paper and a pen and write down so that I can keep up with the things that I'm feeling as I'm praying. Because I, I believe in, in Hebrews 11, it says those who come to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And I think that we have kind of grown accustomed to praying to a God without expecting to feel his presence and without expecting to hear an answer. 
And this is a wrong attitude. We need to believe that he is, and we need to believe that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. If he's not rewarding me, that modifies my assessment of my seeking. I don't say, I sought him diligently and he didn't reward me. His word is not true. I say, I sought him diligently and he didn't reward me, so I've got to change what I think diligent seeking is. And I've got to seek him until he rewards me. And, and I think that's, that's a lot of what it means to transcend ourself. Prayer is a, is a place for us to transcend our problems, our self, our realm, and get into the place of grace. And uh, a lot of times the needs of the day are going to take on, uh, are going to factor prominently in the feeling of, I can't do this without you, God. I need your help. You know, I need your grace. I need your mercy, and so on and so forth. Of course, I do believe that Praying the Lord's Prayer is important, but I don't. I, I believe that that prayer was issued to believers who are not yet born again, and I don't believe that describes the totality of our prayer, but kind of the backbone of what it's about. And I think that's a helpful prayer to pray. I still pray it. I teach my children to pray it, but I don't believe that that describes the totality of a believer's prayer life. Paul would seem to suggest otherwise. This may seem obvious, but I'm, I'm also just thinking, I can even say for myself how important it is that we truly pray in faith. You know, you, I think you just mentioned in passing the passage that those who come to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And there's a sense in which you can you can... You can spend time that you call prayer, and really it's thinking about things and worrying about things, and whatever you're mouthing with your, your mouth, really you're, you're kind of thinking through things. But to really believe that God is there and to trust that he, he's listening, he cares, he loves you, he loves those that you love. You know, he wants, to, he, he wants to see his will come to pass. He wants you to participate in it. He's got answers, and to just pray from that attitude of faith and sometimes I'll, I'll just try to discipline myself. You know, you can ask yourself the question, am I praying in faith? <laughs> Is that what I'm doing here? And then I'll pray until I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm in a place of faith, you know. Um, and that comes through getting your eyes off yourself, putting your, your trust in God. Thanksgiving is, is what brings you into that, that place. You can't be, you can't be um, grateful and um, self-pitiful and depressed at the same time. You just can't do it. So you're either not really grateful, you need to work on that, or, or um, those things have to flee. Amen. You know, that passage that we're quoting from Hebrews 11, it starts off by saying, now without faith, it is impossible to please God, but those who come to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. I think just to summarize, the, the first object is to pray into a certainty of God's presence, number one. And that starts with gratitude, thanksgiving, and praise. And then it is to let the Holy Spirit move and pray through you, knowing that you don't know how to pray. He even knows what to say, and he wants to say it through you. And then going from there to a place where even while we're praying, we're listening, and we're learning, and we're receiving, and we're not praying as a complainer, but we're praying with faith. And uh, praise God. 
he answers prayers. Okay, third question. Um, I can't tell you how much I appreciate getting to hear all the wisdom that comes during this podcast. There is a very dangerous mental spin on the statement, Jesus did it all, that people use to get out of repentance. I have used this spin myself, and I don't need any help trying to get out of repentance. I see it this way. It is only by His grace that we have the ability to repent. If we respond to love by using that ability to repent and move from death to life, He still gets the credit for what we do. If we don't repent and respond with a self-sacrificial love, it is our fault that we still stink with sin. If we have been given a nice bar of goat's milk soap, It is thanks to the giver that we smell so good after responding with using that soap. It is not the soap maker's fault if we refuse to use the soap and we still stink. Is this good theology? (laughs) I guess that's the question. (laughs) I love it. I'm trying to think of a theological argument against goat's milk. <laughs> there we raised, might be a contradiction there. <laughs> Smelling good and goat's milk. Yeah, the the sheep and the goats. I don't know. It doesn't seem like goat's milk is the right the right thing there, but I think it's an excellent um analogy. And uh sure, no analogy is perfect. Every analogy ultimately breaks down and obviously uh soap is a passive agent, uh, and grace is an active agent, but I think it actually does illustrate very well. I'm, I'm going to borrow your analogy. Yeah. I think it illustrates very well how a gift, the fact that something is given, does not mean that we can be irresponsible with it, that we have no duty or uh, responsibility to use it. As he says, if we have gifts that differ according to the measure of Christ's gift, let us use them. <laughs> and And it's the same with grace. So I think that's great theology. I really appreciate that. I also like your dad's analogy on the same question of, because the argument goes, for those who may not be familiar with it, the argument goes that if salvation is a free gift, and if the grace of God is unmerited favor of God and so forth, then this is God's work. And so for me to be feeling obligated to do something in response to that grace, other than to just receive it as some inert passive agent um, is to somehow diminish the grace of God. It's to, it's to act as if I'm not saved by the gift, but I'm actually somehow saving myself because of my response to this grace of God. But I like your dad's analogy, too, of someone who, is, who has fallen off the cliff and is hanging on to a shrub. You know, they're, they're, they're 100 feet down and it's a thousand feet to go. They're going to fall to their death. They're barely hanging on. And then the Lord comes to the edge of the cliff, and he lowers down a rope to them and says, if, if you'll grab this rope, I'll pull you back up and save you. And, and the person with this wrong view of grace is hanging on to the side of the cliff, and he sees the rope right there, and he looks up, and he hears God, and he sees the rope, and he says, I just wouldn't want to diminish your greatness by saving myself. So I can't grab the rope. How foolish would that be? 
We are not saving ourselves by responding to God's gracious gift of an opportunity and reaching out and taking hold of the rope. We are, in fact, just showing our gratitude for the gift that we did not give ourselves, cannot give ourselves. And then when he pulls us up, no one is going to get to the top of the cliff and say, I'm glad I saved myself. <laughs> That's ridiculous. Amen. I gave the example this week in, a, in an earlier uh, audio release that you know, the, the fact that something is given doesn't diminish the fact that we still have to care for it. And, and uh, in, in the sense that if I gave my son a puppy, that doesn't mean he doesn't have to feed it or shelter it or clean it or protect it. Um, and, and it would be absurd for him to say, um, well, if I do any of those things, then it's no longer a gift, it's works. Well, no, that's insanity. It doesn't affect the fact that that puppy was given one iota. And our relationship with God is a living thing. And if we don't tend to it, if we don't treat it with care and respect and, and, and cultivate it, then we're going to neglect so great a salvation. We're going to come short of the grace of God. And, and we're, going to be found, we're going to be found guilty of despising the spirit of grace. So, yes, grace is a finished work. But we've got to tend to our conformity to it. We've got to make sure our life aligns to it. So I love all of those. I, I, I think that's a, that was a great way to put it. But it's a little tongue-in-cheek and maybe a little cheeky to put goat's milk in there. <laughs> I'm wondering if that's a plug for somebody's goat's milk business. <laughs> it is not the soap maker's fault that you still stink if you won't use the soap. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> Okay, so is that it as far as these questions? Yes, yeah, so when uh, the verse in the Bible that says, take up your cross and follow me, uh, could you speak a little bit about it? Because I've heard one interpretation all my life that like everything that comes in life is a burden and that's your cross and carry it. And then I've heard another interpretation more recently that um, many things that we carry thinking it's supposed to be a cross wasn't our cross to carry at all, <laughs> you know? I mean, or, or, that, or that it's a highly misunderstood worse. So if you could elaborate a little bit about that. Well, I think that um, I think of my cross in, in two ways. And first, Jesus clearly says that in multiple Gospels that we have to take up our cross and, and we have to take it up daily and follow him. And then I, I have to connect that to Paul saying that he dies daily. But in this equation, he says that he buffets his flesh and dies daily. And then I see Paul saying that to the church, I am put to death all day long for your sake. And then I see Paul saying that he, has, he is crucified to the world and the world is crucified to him. And then I see him saying, Galatians 5, those who belong to Christ have crucified their flesh with its passions and desires. So to me, the cross is, is twofold, negative and positive. Our daily cross is keeping the tyranny of self-will dead. It's buffeting our flesh. It's keeping our will dead. And I think that the will is the essence of the cross and that's revealed in Gethsemane's prayer not my will but your will be done so I think that's the first part and that's the primary interpretation of those passages that I just quoted I think beyond that 
there is a suffering, not for wrongs that we've done, but for the purpose of a witness and to release grace into our lives and the church. And this is, this is the positive kind of the cross, where we're not, we're not just putting to death our flesh. We are bearing in our bodies the afflictions that belong to Christ. And Paul said, filling up in our bodies that which is lacking in Christ's affliction. We know that in terms of an atoning sacrifice, nothing is lacking in Christ's sacrifice. But in terms of our conformity to the fellowship of his suffering, there is some lacking. And this is a positive work. This is where we are demonstrating a witness. We are spreading the fragrance of Christ. We are suffering persecution. We are enduring blasphemy and slander, ill treatment, and we're doing it in such a way that his power is perfected in our weakness. So I, that's how I see it. Everybody has to daily crucify the tyranny of self-will. That's daily repentance, buffeting our flesh. And then we are seasonally called to bear witness to Christ and diffuse the aroma of his fellowship of suffering in the church and in the world that we live in. And that's a positive work. And that's anything we go through that is not a just punishment of our sin can be that positive cross, that positive witness, whereby we also participate with Christ in disarming the devil and saying, you sent the worst you had to give me but I remain faithful. Faith is stronger. Grace is stronger. Love is stronger. Jesus is stronger. And through him, we are stronger. So it's positive and negative is how I would see it. I find it powerful, too, that he doesn't say, um, if you happen to have a cross dropped on you, try to carry it the best that you can. But that he says, take up your cross and follow me. If anyone will not take up his cross or pick up his cross and follow me, he cannot be my disciple. So there's a, there's a voluntary nature to this cross-bearing that says, I, I will choose to die with Christ, both, both for the sake of my own soul, because I need it, but also as he has loved us, so are we to love one another. I will choose to take up this burden. Uh, just as a follow-up question to that, or a comment, either way, um, the cross, in a sense, was the altar on which the Lamb of God was sacrificed, right? Yes. So is there a way we can relate the carrying of the cross to what Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, where you offer your bodies as living sacrifices? Yes, sir. So that kind of becomes, like, a, like you said, possibly the positive side of carrying the cross. Yes. I really believe that's exactly what he's saying. I believe that Christ is the seminal sacrifice at Calvary. But I believe that the church is still supposed to be the temple, which is the place of sacrifice where all believers are called to bring their offering. And that our sacrifice doesn't save us, but it unites us to the sacrifice that saves us. We can't be saved without making that sacrifice, and it doesn't mean that sacrifice saves us. It merely means it unites us to the sacrifice of Jesus that saves us. That's why Romans 6, Paul says, we are united with him through death, through our own dying. We are united to that great sacrifice that is our atonement. So our offerings are faulty. They're incomplete. They're imperfect. They're sometimes uh, partial or insufficient. But it still shows the fellowship of our willingness to give him everything 
even in our failing efforts to give him everything. And that is, to me, offer yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is called our reasonable form of worship. This is how we show him our honor, what he's worth to us. Amen. And do not be conformed to this world, which seems to indicate that some of what we're sacrificing is our conformity to the world. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Amen. So I, th I think that the temple is still the place of sacrifice. And we, we don't have the big sacrifice of the lamb, but we have the daily sacrifice of our will, of our love for others, of our service to God, the both negative and positive aspect of the cross. I have small clarification, so the simple questions. Yes. So, so, many, so, um, so Jesus answered to Mary uh, words, O woman, what have you do with me? My hour has not yet come. So John uh, 2, 4. So is there any uh, translation or any interpretation behind that? So, so I heard so much of times. So, so I have I have some I need some clarity, clarification. Thank you. And this is John, chapter uh, two, uh, verse four. Is that what you said? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So this is the miracle of Cana. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding when the wine ran out the mother of Jesus said to him they have no wine Jesus said to her woman what does that have to do with us my hour has not yet come his mother said to the servants whatever he says to you do it now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim, and he said to them, Draw out some water now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tested the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called to the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning, this beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went to Capernaum, he and his mother and his, dis and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. So um, the way I interpret this, and Brother Dan, you correct me, because I'm not claiming I see the whole picture here, um, but the way I interpret this, it seems very analogous to me to what occurs in John 7. In John 7, it says that, when the feast came, which was the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus' brothers went up to the feast. But Jesus did not go. And some said to him, why do you not go to the feast? You know, why do you not let yourself be known? And he says to them, because my time has not come. He says, your time is any time, but my time has not yet come. And we see this theme throughout his ministry. When they are going to take him to the brow of the cliff, when he's preached in Nazareth, they're going to kill him. And it says he passed through the crowd, for his time had not yet come. And the idea is that Jesus is operating in precise timing. 
Because in the John 7 account, on the seventh and greatest day of the feast, lo and behold, he's at the feast. And you might have thought, well, if his time had not yet come, why is he at the feast? Well, it's the difference between a few days. And I am inclined to believe that this with Mary is a difference between probably a few minutes. <laughs> she is seeming to, to nudge him. I might say like mothers are wont to do. Um, but uh, she's like, they've run out of wine. She must have some grounds for saying that. She must have some. He already has disciples. There must have been other less public miracles. But she says they've run out of wine, and he kind of rebukes her. He doesn't say mother. He says, woman, my time has not yet come. And why do you say this? My time has not yet come. And I think that, you know, maybe it's a translation issue, but I think we, we infer from that that somehow this is a long span of time. But I would say if my daughter came to me and said, Daddy, Daddy, they're wanting you, I'd say, honey, it's not time right now. And I think that's basically what he's saying. This isn't the time. And I think 5, 10, 30 minutes later, it's the time. And it's just consistent with the precise timing that marked Jesus' ministry. Is that? Sounds good. I don't know that I have anything to add. Okay. I'm not sure, but that's, that, that would be my inclination. That's, that seems to harmonize with the other dynamics of timing in his life. I might just comment that Jesus also said in, in Acts 1, speaking to the disciples, that the times and the seasons belong to the Father's own authority. And uh, you've spoken about it before. Your dad used to minister about it, how timing is a form of authority. And so being submissive, e even in our own lives, to timetables that lie outside of our delineation is a way of submitting to the authority of God. So Jesus seems like he's making this, if this is the beginning of his ministry, perhaps this is in the scripture to, to show us the importance that he places right at the beginning, not just on doing what he's got the power to do or what he thinks is a great idea, but that he's going to submit from the very first second to the timing of the Lord in, in his ministry. Uh, regarding the marriage principles, uh, we want to have some uh, details about it, how to go about it, because... Uh, as Brother Ajay gave a testimony, it really shook us. Okay, we were uh, influenced by the way that he was telling about uh, their daughters and their parenting. And I know that it is, uh, within the quiet time, it is not uh, that easy to take in. Just to have an eye opener. Okay, what uh, we want to really follow that, uh, not an admirer. <laughs> we want to follow that. Amen. So in that that thing, we want to know about it. I wonder if we could just punt to Brother Ajay and ask him to clarify. He wants to know uh, the specific patterns, uh, what is distinct about our patterns for marriage and family. And having, having recently joined this journey, I think it might be good to hear it straight from the horse's mouth. What we experienced as we um, came, uh, as we felt the need that we were not able to love one another, and as we read the word of God, we were convicted that we need the baptism of the Holy Spirit, especially as we read Romans 5.5, 5, where it says, so we were families that were living together. We thought that, you know, we could 
oh this is the way we need to live as church and we feel if we come together if we come together on agriculture on homeschooling um and uh, you know doing all the right things you know family would come into the right place uh, children would come to a right faith our relationships would all come into the right place but it was not happening and as we desperately cried to the lord we and especially for me it was romans 5 5 that really convicted me that um we need his spirit to love um it, it's just not going to be a social experiment it cannot be a social experiment and um and as uh, we cried out to the lord and as the lord filled us with the spirit i mean we started loving one another we could love one another and uh, the very relationships that were fragmenting started coming together i mean i still remember uh, vijay sharing with one of the brother i mean one of the one of our friends that i'm through with this i'm leaving and uh, here we are today you know rejoicing together and you know sharing our lives with one another and willing to give our lives for one another as well and um, there is so much we can learn through our wisdom you know that is there inside our head you know there's so much we can understand from um from uh, what we can glean from the world outside you know to the from the net or from a book you know but when you see lives that are lived out there is a witness and as we um you know, as we went and spent time with these families uh, we were uh, enabled to draw boundary lines for our families for our family and those boundary lines helped us to actually help our children to actually look up to god and as they cried out to the lord and as they were born of the spirit uh, they started uh, you know becoming those new creation that that we were becoming you know amen thank you so in summary we have to have the holy spirit you know that and then second take it to brother cash please i want to ask you as well brother cash um second we we have to have the holy spirit number 1 and then second we have to be in a context of the body that will actually disciple us leaders need discipleship as much or more than anybody else and so we need to free up the the body of Christ to help us and if if we don't have the holy spirit if we haven't come to repentance we're going to reject that discipleship but if we have then we have the foundation where the body can really perfect the saints and bring a level of of unity and fruitfulness um brother cash uh could you uh talk just from a um could you build on the idea that uh, of what your experience was of what you feel like would be necessary for people who have been born of the spirit who have the pentecostal ex- experience but their families are in disarray what are they missing well um what comes to mind is i think the scripture says you know um those that are led by the spirit are the sons of god so i think in most of the spirit movement or the spirit filled movement is one being born of the spirit it's more of a concept of having a touchdown you know it's a it's a number game how many people get filled by the spirit it's more of trying to fill the pews and and so on and so forth and they totally miss coming into a place of discipleship so what i've learned you know came from a spirit movement before joining the community is is how many people can you pray through through the holy ghost so how many people that you have brought th- you know in that experience so far but they have totally come away 
from the reason of why God gave us the spirit in the first place so that we can actually really see the revelation of the body, you know, and he's given us that deposit, that spirit to give us the grace so that we can walk into a place of discipleship, being disciple and being fitly framed together. Amen. So I think that is the biggest missing point that I found from a spirit-filled movement to coming into the body of Christ. Amen. Okay, well, let's call that a wrap. Pray for our brothers and sisters, wonderful uh, brothers and sisters here in India. We are blessed and privileged to spend this time with God's dear people. And I'm going to ask those of you to give a good shout-out to the church in Texas and everywhere else. Okay, well, that's a wrap. God bless you. Lord willing, you'll see us next week.